before I get into today's teaching, I just want to share one special announcement with y'all about something that's happening right now, this morning. So earlier this morning, we dropped a brand new episode of the Maybe God podcast called Does Every Orphan Need Adopting? It might be the most important episode we've ever produced uh, since Maybe God started almost three years ago. So if you don't know what Maybe God is, it's a podcast, a long-form storytelling podcast we've been doing for a few years now. And this episode about orphans really wrecked me because this was one of those big problems that I thought I knew the answers to. And that was so reassuring to me to have the answers to one of these problems. But of course, what I found in the development of this episode is that the, the answers that I thought were there really are a little misleading. Like we all think that the answer to the 153 million orphans there are in the world is just making a way for more adoptions to happen, right? That's the most obvious solution. And Christians and churches across the world have been working with the best of intentions for years to try and remedy this, the, the orphan problem with more orphanages and more adoptions. And that's been well-intentioned. But what I learned in the development of this episode is that many of our best intentions have caused more harm than good. And so it was really surprising and eye-opening. I know you're gonna be surprised and, and, and I hope you'll be inspired by this episode as well. Lots of you know that here at The Story, we've been dreaming about a foster and adoption ministry for over a year now. But before we get real serious or too far down the road on that, we've got to make sure we know how best to help. And so I'm asking three things of you this morning. First, listen to that episode. It's a little over an hour long, so settle in. It's a storytelling episode. It's gonna, it's a tearjerker, it's inspiring, but I know you'll be blessed by it. So listen to that episode this week and then pray. Pray earnestly for how God might be nudging you or inspiring you to make a difference as far as this problem is concerned. And third, keep your eyes and ears and heart open for more news to come in the next few months about the development of this ministry and how you might contribute to it. If you feel moved even right now to give or contribute to the solutions to this problem, we've entered into a relationship with a few organizations that I believe are really getting it right. And one of them is called America's Kids Belong. And a portion of this morning's offerings is gonna go directly to America's Kids Belong. If you want your money to go straight to America's Kids Belong, then uh, you can write the word orphan in the memo section of your check, if you still write checks, or uh, you can put it in the notes of your online gift. Um, just put the word orphan and we will know to get your funds to America's Kids Belong this week. For more information about this whole campaign, visit this other website that we've joined forces with this thing called Orphan Myth. Orphanmyth.org is where to find more information about this two-week campaign that's not just naming the problem, but really answering some questions and, and marching toward a solution to this issue. So thank you for listening to the episode, for your prayers, and thank you in advance for your generous response. I know you're gonna come through, Story Church. We're gonna make a difference in the name of Jesus. So I'm really excited about that. All right, so we're gonna jump into our teaching now. And most of you know, by now, <laughs> I wrote a book, have you heard? Okay, so I wrote a book called Scripture and the Skeptic. It released in February. We've been going through one chapter at a time, digging into the questions that I asked in each chapter. And this is part eight of eight. We're at the end of this series now. I wanna thank you for engaging with me in this all important discussion. I can't think of a more important conversation to be having right now than this one we're having about the Bible because I think we're living in unprecedented times where people have fallen out of love with the Bible 
in, in numbers that we've never seen in America before. The approval rating of the Bible is lower than it's ever been in our culture. And I think there are some very good reasons for that. I empathize with a lot of those reasons. As I said in the very last paragraph of my book, that uh, I, I grew up loving the Bible. In my teens, I fell away from the Bible. In my 20s, I hated the Bible. In my 30s, I came back to the Bible. And now I can't imagine living without it. And I know I'm biased, but I believe that the Bible contains the answers to our heart's deepest questions. Even though a lot of people see the Bible as an enemy, it really pains me when I hear people talk about the Bible as though it's an adversary to their worldview. I believe what the Bible has for us are answers that surpass all the answers we're finding in this world. And so, um, and so I want to address some of that pain today and some of the disconnect between where culture is and where the Bible is. And maybe this is helpful to you today. Maybe it's helpful to somebody that you love. So the question that I posed in this chapter is, why is the Bible so backward? And what I'm really getting at here is, why is the Bible so backward on the issues of modern-day concerns, right? So in other words, we have, um, we have people in our culture who see the world is broken. We all agree the world is broken. We disagree on some of the issues, but we agree the world isn't as it should be. And, and many people who feel this way feel as though the Bible is the reason why the world isn't the way it should be. They don't have a problem with Jesus. Generally speaking, skeptics are cool with Jesus. Skeptics are pretty cool with even parts of the Bible that are hard to understand. Skeptics can wrap their heads around but when the Bible stands in contrast to their political ideas on their most cherished beliefs or, or issues, that's when people throw up their hands and walk away. We're living in the age of issues. We have issues, you might say, today, because our identities, in many cases, are being built around our views on certain issues. And our identities used to be built around other things, religious uh, you know, belonging or family name or ethnicity, and now we're building identities around our, our, our platform on certain select issues. Name your hot button topic, you know, um, women's rights or gay rights or trans rights or, or climate change or gun control or name your topic. People, especially people a little younger than me, are building their identity on their position on these issues. And when the Bible seems to disagree with those issues, people are willing to walk away from it. And so, what do we do? What do we do when this happens? It's a strange time to be alive. I think we would all agree. Strange time where non-religious people are canceling each other the way only the most religious people used to cancel people <laughs> with such fervor and ferocity. The, a great example is what happened to J.K. Rowling, who, who was a cultural icon, the likes of which few had ever seen. She was the greatest author in a generation who sold over 500 million copies of her Harry Potter books, grossing almost $8 billion in revenue, almost as much as Scripture and the Skeptic by Eric Huffman. If you, I'm just kidding. No, 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 no. It's... it's it was amazing to watch this phenomenon. She used to be homeless. She came from nowhere. 
And then she wrote these books, and, and now she, you know, she became an icon. At least until a, a female researcher was fired from her job for suggesting that biological males who become uh, women shouldn't be allowed to compete in women's sports. And she tweeted in response to that event, dress however you please, call yourself whatever you like, sleep with any consenting adult who will have you, live your best life in peace and security, but force women out of their jobs for stating that sex is real? Hashtag I stand with Maya, that's the name of the researcher that was fired. Boy, <laughs> in the aftermath of that tweet, she might as well have been Jerry Falwell or some hated like Christian you know, celebrity because she faced such criticism from the very generation that she helped raise with her books. I mean, they rebelled against her like Dobby the Elf rebelled against the Malfoys. <laughs> like, like they declared their independence quicker than anything. They, they started calling her nothing but another cisgendered heterosexual wealthy white woman who's decided what we can and can't do with our bodies. She must be silenced immediately. And now they're, they've held book burnings, the Harry Potter books in parking lots, and we've declared her persona non grata because we're living in the age of the issues, and trans rights is one of the most sacred issues among sec many secular people in our culture. And J.K. Rowling stepped out of line. So she had held to pay. It's a fascinating um, phenomenon that we're seeing, and, and we're seeing it every day in many cases, not just with that issue, but with uh, any number of other issues as well. So I'm not, by the way, suggesting that the issues we're living and dying for are, are necessarily evil or bad. Hear me when I say that standing up for someone's basic dignity or human rights is basically a good thing. And I think that desire comes from our having been created in God's image. That's who God is, all right? Some of our ideas go astray as to be expected, but the core of that is good. What I am saying today is constructing an identity on any particular political persuasion is, is a highway to hell. It is a, it is a path to nowhere because you inevitably will become convinced that you are the righteous one, your view is the righteous way, and anyone who stands in contrast to you is wrong or deserving of some kind of punishment because they're against you. That, I think, is a path to self-destruction that we should all be careful of because we're, as our culture, we're just awash with this kind of thinking. And I know this because that's exactly what happened to me from age 20 to 34. Listen, I was, this is very confusing for people, but I was a United Methodist pastor from 20 to 34, but I did not believe in the core tenets of Christianity. I was not technically a Christian, even though I was getting ordained. I was successfully ordained. And it's a shock to some people, especially in the deep heart of Texas, <laughs> that in some parts of the country, in some denominations, you cannot believe in the core tenets of Christianity and still get ordained as a pastor. But that was me. I called myself a pastor, but I could not and would not live in submission to the teachings of the Bible. Why? Because of the issues. The Bible was an impediment to the utopia 
that I believed we could create. Uh, you know, especially we could create this utopia if all these Christians weren't around to stand in the way. And this is a common mentality among many secular circles is this idea that if, if the Bible and the people that cling to it would just get out of the way, we could create a better society where we have common sense gun laws, where we have you know, more rights for women and, and oppressed people, where we level the playing field and have equality of outcome and all these things that we think are good things if the Christians in the Bible would just get out of the way. When I was growing up, it was the Christians who were rooting for the rapture. And now it's like secular people want it. <laughs> now secular people wouldn't mind if the Christians were raptured. Just get out of the way so we could create this better society that we know is out there because we are right on the issues. And what I did at that time of my life, I look back at this in shame now, but what I did at that time of my life was I would, when I taught the Bible, I would lead with some sort of veiled apology for it before I discredited it. And beware, of, I can't express this enough, but I sound crazy when I say it, beware of any Bible teacher who goes out of his or her way to discredit the Bible before telling you what it means. Because that's a very common tactic now. I used to do it all the time. I'd say things like, sure, Leviticus says same-sex relationships are wrong, but it also says you shouldn't eat bacon and plenty of Christians eat bacon, wink, wink. Don't worry about what Leviticus says. Or I would say things like, sure, Paul said some nasty things about women, but Paul was kind of a misogynist, kind of a sexist. Wink, wink, you don't have to listen to everything Paul says. Listen to Jesus, not Paul, as if they're in contradiction. But you can create doubt in people wherein you can insert your own ideology, even if it's contrary to what the Bible says. You know, even Jesus I would disagree with sometimes. Sure, Jesus was casting out demons all the time, but you know, he was just doing the best he could in a pre-scientific world, probably dealing with mental illness, schizophrenia, or, or maybe, maybe epilepsy. That's what those symptoms sound like to me in my modern sensibility. Jesus was just a pre-scientific caveman of sorts, and so he just didn't know any better. Demons aren't really a thing, wink, wink. And why I would go out of my way to dismiss demons, I can't be sure. Maybe it's because I was under their influence at the time. I don't know, or maybe I was just trying to demystify everything so that I could boil the Bible down to a sort of semi-Marxist socialist utopia, whatever the case. Uh, when I met Jesus accidentally in 2013, I was forced to deal with my own demons, so to speak. And I was really brought to my knees and forced to ask better questions than I'd been asking so instead of, why is the Bible so backward? I found myself asking questions like, what if the Bible's not backward? What if I'm backward? It's a scary question to ask, but it's one that any honest skeptic should be willing to wrestle with because it's not outside the realm of possibility that when you think you're right, you could be wrong. And if you're facing the wrong direction, anything that's coming at you is going the right way. And so this goes without, without saying that if you're wrong, then you have no idea of knowing really what's right or discerning what's right or telling someone else what's right. I mean, have you ever gotten lost? I mean, like really like disoriented or you've lost sense of direction? 
This is very embarrassing for a Christian, I mean, for a, for a man, a Christian man, <laughs> I guess, to, to confess. I, I like any, like any self-respecting man, I, I like to pride myself on my impeccable sense of direction. But I've been in Houston for seven years almost, and every time I go downtown, it's like the twilight zone to me. I don't know where I am. If you run into me downtown, do not ask me for directions because I'm prideful and I'll pretend that I know. But I don't know. I don't even know what direction north is, south. I'm always turned around downtown. I have no idea why. Anywhere else in Houston, I'm fine. But downtown, I'm lost. And that kind of disorientation is what happens to us, all of us. And so we should be very slow to pretend as though we have the corner on truth or on what's right and wrong, especially when we're living apart from God. This kind of disorientation happens to us in a couple of ways. And I wrote about one of the ways it happens in the last chapter of this book, in chapter eight of the book, Um, because one of the ways this happens to us is by our own privilege, our own comfort. If you live a real privileged, comfortable, soft, easy life your whole life, you will easily become convinced that you're facing the right direction, that you have the right idea, that people that don't have what you have are wrong and you're right because all you've ever known is pleasure and comfort. And my eyes were open to this in the year 2000 when I went to Ecuador for the first time to visit my in-laws, Giovanna's family in 2000. And and in the summer of 2000, Ecuador, uh, the economy of Ecuador was falling apart. It was in chaos. But my family, my in-laws were very hospitable to me. They gave me the grand tour of the city of Quito, the capital city of Ecuador. And then after that, my father-in-law, Luis, brought us back home to his place. And when we drove up to his house, it was clear that the the house had been robbed while we were gone. Windows were broken out, the door was kicked in, and everything was gone, everything of value. And Giovanna and her father began to assess the damage. But I immediately, I I snapped into like... um, American hero, law and order mode. Like I was channeling every episode of Special Victims Unit I'd ever seen. I was just like barking out orders, like fingerprints, people, (laughs) don't touch anything, you know, and keep a copy of that police report for the insurance claim, all this kind of stuff you'd say if you came from a privileged place like me. But nobody was listening to me and I got real frustrated and I, I pulled Giovanna aside and I said, nobody's even called the cops yet, nobody's listening. We need to get on this. And she just kind of rolled her eyes at me and she said, Eric, there's no one to call. And I said, what do you mean? She said, the cops are the ones who did it. While we were gone, the neighbor watched it as the police van pulled up to Luis's house and a bunch of guys got out of the police van in uniform, kicked the door in, took everything they wanted and left. It was the first time that I realized my sheltered upbringing had, had, had sort of um, deceived me to think that everybody has police to call. Everybody has 911. Everybody can expect justice when the cops come, when most of the people in the world today cannot. Now, here's how this applies to the question of the day. A big struggle for me in my prior years, before I was a Christian, has been the violence that's in the Bible. How could God sanction such violence? like in the Old Testament, especially Joshua and going into Canaan, how can we justify this God-ordained violence? It just seemed beneath me. How could I believe in a God who's not as good a person as me? That was my justification back then. 
Well, that experience in Ecuador opened my eyes to the realities that most people have lived with in the world, not just today, but especially in times past. 3,000 plus years ago, when Joshua was leading the people of God into this place called Canaan, the world was much more barbaric than it is now. And people who had been robbed, raped, or pillaged had no justice coming their way, not in this life. There was no cops to call, no 911, no expectation of justice. Just all they could do was sit and pray, pray for God to have his way one day, to pray for God to bring justice and judgment. That's the only power that they had. The land of Canaan was was governed by the pharaohs, was governed by Egypt for centuries, and pharaohs ruled with an iron fist, and they controlled the local economies. They killed the local economies, and in the absence of opportunity, young men did what young men do. In the absence of opportunities, they created gangs, roving bands of gangs that wandered the countryside, raping and pillaging. And there's documented evidence of not just the Egyptians, but these roving bands going throughout Canaan and and flaying the skin off of live victims and cutting genitalia off of prisoners of war and feeding it to them in front of their children. Like we have cave paintings and documentation of this kind of thing going on during the days of Joshua. And so as I wrote, I'll just share a quote with you as I summed up this part in in the book in chapter eight, Whenever we sit in our 21st century air-conditioned rooms with our bellies full of food and clean water and with our children mostly safe and healthy, and we complain about all of the nasty violence in the Old Testament, I hear naivete and privilege. In my experience, almost no one who has a real problem with violence in the Bible has been victimized like people in the Bible times were. The ones who criticize God for taking out bad guys in the Old Testament tend to be the same people who can call 911 when somebody breaks in. People who can trust that justice will be served in this life. So privilege and comfort is one of the ways we get disoriented. This is true for most of us, I would say. The other way is is sin. I didn't talk about that little three word the three-letter word much in this chapter of the book, but I'm going to talk about it right now because sin is something that disorients all of us. The Bible says we're all sinners. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. First John chapter 1, verse 8 says, anybody that says they don't have sin is deceiving themselves. Self-deception is a powerful thing. So the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian isn't the absence of sin. It's just the acknowledgement of sin and its effects on us. And one of the consequences of living with sin unchecked is disorientation. Living in sin is like being drunk all the time because you think you know what's right, you think you're making sense, but everybody thinks you're crazy because you're not making any sense and you're always facing the wrong direction. You're convinced you're right, but you're not. I once had to counsel, had to, I got to counsel, because um, I love my job. I got to counsel this guy who was, um, who, who had been adulterous numerous times, a married man, had a great faithful wife, loving kids, but he was wrecking his marriage with his compulsive cheating. And we were meeting over coffee, but every time we met, he didn't want to talk about himself. He wanted to talk about 
other people. You want to talk about politics? He was very politically driven. He was a conservative Republican, outspoken Republican. And every time we got together, he talked nonstop about how the liberals are ruining this country with their immorality and their rebellious spirit. And it took every ounce of strength I had not to just explode on this man. Brother, you've got a beautiful wife at home who loves you, has been faithful to you, and kids at home, their bags are packed. You have wrecked your home, and you'd rather talk about how other people are wrecking this country. Like, get your house in order before you start taking your frustration out on other people and judging other people. Man, this is one of the ways we become self-deceived. Almost nothing in this world is as impenetrable (laughs) as a sinner's self-delusion. The power of unchecked sin is that it allows you to hyperanalyze somebody else's shortcomings and to overlook your own. And the longer your sin goes unchecked, the more self-deluded you become. And I think this is how we've gotten to where we are in our culture today. Everyone else's sins are the problem. Mine never are. This is why I think we're so angry as a culture about the Bible and about uh, God and about Christianity today. It's also the root cause of this thing we're calling cancel culture. This sins from an insidious combination of privilege and sin that allows us to create gods in our own image. And this week, one of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller, tweeted this. He said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Here's the thing about the God in the Bible. The God of the Bible rarely will agree with you on everything. The God of the Bible will disagree with you regularly because his holiness so exceeds our own. The God of the Bible might seem backward to you because you're set in your ways and he's coming against you, but maybe it's you who's turned around. The God of the Bible seems to want to reveal our own backward thinking. I mean, this is why Jesus came in the way that he did. This is why he died in the way that he did on a cross. There's no more backward way to kill a person than with a Roman cross, naked and alone, tortured, bleeding out and suffocating as Jesus did. This week, we're gonna talk about what happened to Jesus on the cross on Thursday at Timber Grove and Friday here at River Oaks. I hope you all will join us for one of those services. This is what the apostle Paul wrote about the backward nature of this world and the God who entered into it in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are saved, who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will, uh, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 
Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. He's saying Christ crucified is a backward way of thinking according to this world. But Christ crucified, God on a cross, actually reveals our own backward thinking. It reveals our own backward nature. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Have you ever thought that maybe the reason Jesus came to die in the most backward way imaginable is to just show us how backward we've become? I mean, we think that, we think that to win in this life means to die with the most toys. It means to get rich. And the Bible is clear. God in the Bible says that to be rich is a, it can be a curse. It can make your life harder. It can make it harder for you to get into heaven. We think we're supposed to win by being first and best. Jesus said the first will be last and the last will be first. He's showing us an opposite way of thinking than what we think is normal. Maybe that's why he died in such a backward way. God on a cross dying on a hill he created. Maybe it's not God who's backward. Maybe it's us. We live in the age of the issues. We live in a time in which Dr. Seuss gets canceled. But the next week, Lil Nas X releases a video in which he gives Satan a lap dance and he puts shoes up for sale that have drops of human blood in them and they're selling for $1,000 a piece and he is hailed as a hero. We live at a time in which <laughs> a woman raises a generation across the world, a generation of children. She raises them up and indoctrinates them and leads them to believe that things like witchcraft and sorcery are perfectly acceptable ways <laughs> of seeing things. And that's great. She's a hero. But the moment she says what she said on Twitter, she's a villain. We live in a world in which you can hurt a puppy and the world will come after you. But if you say a word about a million babies being slaughtered, most of whom because they're inconveniencing someone, then you're a bigot and your way is backward. We live in a world in which it's okay to talk about the liberals or whoever that's ruining this country while you're carrying on multiple affairs, wrecking your own home. We live in a world in which everyone is in need of Jesus, but no one wants him. We would just as soon he were still on the cross. But here's the kicker that I was thinking about this morning. Even as I share all of these awful things about the way of the world, I'm brought to my knees again because I would rather tell you about the deal Lil Nas X made with the devil than tell you about the deals I've made with the devil throughout my life. I'd rather tell you about, you know, 
J.K. Rowling indoctrinating a bunch of kids into witchcraft and sorcery than I would tell you where I was last weekend when I wasn't preaching. I was on Diagon Alley and Universal Studios with my children giving thousands of dollars to <laughs> said witchcraft franchise. <laughs> I would rather tell you about everybody else's problems than my own. I would rather tell you about the, the, the scourge of abortion than I would tell you about all the times that I would just as soon dispose of someone who was an inconvenience to me. And the gospel always brings it back home, past all the issues we hold dear into your own heart. G.K. Chesterton, the great author, once responded to a call that a newspaper put out. That they, were, they were asking the question, what's the problem with the world? This was in the midst of World War II and that crisis. And Chesterton wrote back, dear sirs, I am. <laughs> that was the extent of it. That's what the gospel does. The gospel takes us off our soapboxes, down to our knees, where we are wrecked with conviction. But the gospel doesn't leave us there because though we are all guilty, though we are all sinners, the promise of the gospel is that we are all forgiven. We are all forgiven and free to live. So I pray you'll receive this challenge as I pose it at the end of the book, just the challenge to stop pointing fingers, the challenge to stop diagnosing everybody else's problems and receive the challenge to just ask yourself honestly, am I even facing in the right direction? Am I the one who's backward? When God or the word of God comes against me, am I pushing back as though I'm smarter, as though I know more, or am I willing to submit and surrender and learn and grow? I pray you'll receive this challenge from the Holy Spirit to surrender yourself to every word on the page of the Bible. Because I believe this book is not just the good book, but it is the perfect story of God's perfect love for imperfect sinners like you and me. We pray together. Father, thank you for this reminder today. I pray for the presence of mind right now for myself first and for others as well, just the presence of mind, the humility to be absolutely wrecked with conviction, to be brought low, to be brought to our knees by our own sin, by our own self-delusion, by our own image of, uh, of ourselves that we've been worshiping all this time instead of you. God, when your word challenges us, help us to be discerning and humble instead of just running away. Help us to see our own shortcomings before we see the sins of everybody else and help us, Father, to receive in light of our sin the grace afforded us through the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word, the perfect story of your perfect love for us imperfect sinners. And I pray for the courage for every skeptic in this room and online right now to dive in to your word, trusting to find you there. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.